0: Insecticides are a big one that we can drop. I can drop insecticides. Well, I've dropped insecticides. They're they're almost a no-go for me now. But um yeah, just, just that needs disappeared because of the health. Yeah, healthy soil, healthy plant, healthy animal. Healthy human. That's right, all the way up.
1: Hello and welcome along to the Corum Sense Podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative, and enjoyable farming systems. All right, everybody, welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm joined today by Nigel Greenwood, Simon White, and Dave Klein. And today's going to be our first uh, play around with a multiple guest format. So we're calling this one the Arable Panel. I'm going to start with just allowing these gentlemen to introduce themselves. So let's start with you, Nigel. Uh, yeah. Hi, Nigel
0: Greenwood, um, farming in Southbridge, uh, fourth generation on our farm, uh, raising, the, raising the fifth, hopefully. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I guess first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a father and a husband. Um, I yeah, work to live, not the other way around, and try, try to uh, try to have weekends. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I lease, lease 90 hectares, um, which I farm my way. And I also work for and with my parents um, on the other 130-odd hectares. So keeps me out of mischief. Um, I've been no-till on my block now for a couple of years, um, leading up to that for, a, for a probably seven or eight before that. And I've been delving in the alternative space if I can call it that, um, for about 16 years, just, um, yeah, just playing around with different things and seeing what works and what doesn't, and yeah, enjoy enjoy sharing my story, and I enjoy trialing things and learning things and talking to people, so that's me.
1: Awesome, Nigel, thank you, and for those of you that don't know, uh, Nigel is one of the co-founders of Quorum Sense, so um, it's, it's, we're very present to Nigel's curiosity and his joy of sharing and contributing. Cheers, Nigel. Simon. Yeah, g'day, guys. So, Simon White. So, we farm,
2: I farm with my wife, Lou, up in the Hawkes Bay with uh, three little kids. Um, so, predominantly arable, but sheep and beef as well. So, grow a pretty wide range of crops. We grow about 15 different crops from processed veggies um, to, to fresh overseas market squash, uh, small seed crops, cereal crops um, and, and those yeah, a bit of maize and things like that as well. So, so reasonably, reasonably diverse um, with a winter trade lamb and, and finishing bulls mostly through the spring but through the autumn as well. Um, so, yeah, this farm's been in our family for 60 years. Our family's been in this area for 150 years. Um, so we know the area reasonably well. Um, reasonably fertile where we are. We've got sort of a, a, a variety of soil types. The main one being uh, peat loams, silt loams, and then we've got some clay loam as well. Um, so we farm um, roughly 135 hectares total. Um, we've got a substantial half of that's probably irrigated under centred pivot irrigation. Um, lucky enough, that my father adopted no-till in the early days so some of our land's been intensively cropped for 45-50 years now um, and he's he probably introduced no-till uh, the 35 years ago um, playing around and we've taken that uh, basically to a small portion to a very large portion of the farm now um, so mix of no-till and strip tillage and still some cultivation as well on some sea crops. Um, but no, love farming, enjoy what we do we uh, like Nigel we, um, we work to live, try and get weekends off but I don't know it's tend, to, tend to always be somewhere in the weekend on the farm, it's all good though
1: so yeah Awesome Simon awesome, thank you so much and Dave, tell us a bit about yourself man
3: Uh, My name is Dave, first generation farmer. So I grew up in the middle of Sydney. And so, yeah, quite a change for me to come over here and um, try farming. I guess I was always driven to the land, to the earth, which was difficult in the middle of the city. I generally find myself wandering off to the Blue Mountains and sitting on a rock quite a lot of the time in my uh, later adolescence. And yeah, came to farming sort of Three went to Lincoln, uh, studied a uh, Bachelor of Science, then went to the BHU, which was awesome, it's really good people, then worked for Kelvin Hicks in Horada, which is a really good organic farm out there, and he taught me a huge amount of knowledge, which I'm very grateful for, and then spent some time in Australia on a quite an intensive uh, organic farm over there. Um yeah, I was on the Murray River, basically growing uh, high value crops in the sand. And then, yeah, came back here, had a, met my wife, had some kids, and now I'm at Mount Castle. I've been here for three years, uh, arable manager, and we grow sort of a variety of high value, sort of export seed crops. And essentially, that's, yeah, what the land use sort of prescribes really. It's quite light soil where the seven tenant pivots are, there's eight pivots here some beautiful soils, melladic soils on the hills. And I spend a lot of time thinking how I can truck that soil down to the flats. We've got cation exchange capacities of, you know, 57, uh, organic, around 10, that sort of thing. And yeah, I just really love farming. Always been organic. Don't know the other side.
1: Guys, I want to talk about firstly, you know, for all of you, you know, we've heard um, a bit about what you do. What? Bought on because I'm sure you guys didn't inherit all of your ideas. You know, a lot of what you guys are doing is pretty, you know, innovative. And so, what, what brought on this, you know, new way of like Nigel, you use the term alternative, whatever your, you know, branding is of what you do, what brought on that way of thinking? Because it's not the mainstream way we farm, is it?
0: No, you're right. Um, I guess. I've always been a, a why child. Um, I used to annoy the out of a lot of people by asking cl- questions, um, and I guess I've just carried that right through. I remember one day someone say, "Oh, you'll you need to spray this fungicide across this paddock, this crop because it it'll get um, it'll get rust." And I says, "Well, why is it going to get rust?" And this blank look at you know, and then the answer was, "It just does." So it's it's little things like that that have sort of picked my curiosity and lead me down the, uh, I don't know if it's a rabbit warren, I think it's more like an anthill there's a lot of different facets that you can you can investigate and one of my early exposures I suppose to the conventional side was when I was growing carrots and I got um, sick from 4-8 and I just, yeah, I just had I had to go away from using it and it was just, yeah, I actually went I did a lot of research, back then it was reading books because the internet was very very infant, but um, yeah, it was just focus I actually did a lot of reading on what get what the organic folk do for these things and trying to bring that back into my conventional system to make my conventional system less conventional. And eventually you find some other people in the in the world that doing similar things and you start talking. And then fast forward, you know, 13, 14 years and Quorum Sense was born and now we've got a network of people that can actually share all these ideas and it's it's really has accelerated a lot of the learning that's
2: I mean, for me, I guess curiosity was part of it as well. I sort of probably did uh inherit the the no-till system, but but I, I was I was so intrigued that when I first came home I started to do a little bit of work, not you know, outside the farm boundary, just for uh, contracting for some of the neighbours. And um, I was finding that some of our crops were tending tended to be a lot cleaner than their crops. And, and so that just got I just got curious to why that was happening. And obviously the more in depth you get, the more you read, the more you find out, the more questions you start to ask. And then it starts to sort of tick away, like, you know, this is uh, it's a cost saving, it's benefit, there's a benefit for the for the soil, there's there's all these other added benefits that you, you start realizing and and you just get on this little bit of a wave. And, it, and the wave, it's like, it, it, tends to, it doesn't sort of stop, but it keeps going. So, um, and then, yeah, like Nigel said, then these uh, groups start popping up on social media. And, uh, and that wave gets sort of bigger. Um, you start finding out more. and, uh, and, and that, Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting space anyway
0: keeps you awake from 2 till 4 a.m. most mornings thinking about what the next thing is probably
1: (laughs) (laughs) and Dave I guess you've sort of been you know on the wave right from the start but you know what have been some of the key learnings for you from you know not being from a farming background I know Calvin Hicks incredibly clever human being indeed I've, I've seen a lot of his crops and always been like wow that was in my early stages of farming organically at Tim Chamberlain. So I was always like, man, how does he do it? But, um, you know, what are some of the key learnings for you, Dave, through your journey so far?
3: Probably the importance of planning. Um, yeah, if you don't have a plan, you don't have a farm. I think organics, there's no shortcuts, really. Like, you have to prevent problems rather than react to them. And a big part of that is having a good, balanced, uh, Rotation—that's sort of—that's uh, directed by the land and the soil—and um, yeah, just doing a lot of research by like going through. Lincoln is really useful because you know, I don't have to look up things on the in the journals and you know on the on the, in the research sites. And I, I probably would classify, classify myself as sort of like maybe a scientific farmer or like a data-driven farmer. And um, yeah, learning how to use a spreadsheet <laughs> useful. I learned how to do that in Australia, and it sort of transformed how I operate and manage things now. But really, the way I started was just trying to do things as naturally as possible, and that, that just felt good. I know that's not very scientific, but that's always just been the driver, how to work with the land rather than against it. It is challenging like organics. I do know there's, you know, when you look at the numbers for global food security and you look at the, the yields for organics, it's not a good picture. So for me, my biggest challenge I think is trying to get organic yields up there, you know, close to the conventional ones. Yeah. So in terms of global food security, I you know, I find that a challenge with organics and, um, Yeah, trying to get the yields up to conventional is probably my biggest sort of aim. And I think technology is going to be a big part of that. And um, you know what? Maybe would separate the organic and the regenerative sort of systems is how we manage weeds. And, you know, once that electric weeder becomes sort of mainstream, I know there's a few high-voltage solutions out there. I think that's going to be a real game-changer for organics. And I'll probably trade in the plough and buy a cross-slot drill. And I could show you some soil tests from uh, the Glasnevin flats up here in Wiper and just the effects that cultivation have on the soil. Like I I mapped out the soil, all the blocks, all the paddocks uh, this season on the Glasnevin flats. And I, I noticed quite a, an alarming difference between those paddocks, which had been in pasture for donkey's years and those which have been cropped for the past six years and, you know, we've lost a significant part of our carbon. Uh, I estimate I've worked it out to be 30%. Once you plough, cultivate, you use a power harrow, uh, all the inter-row weeding, and then got to plough again to clean out the paddocks and put in your, you know, your winter feed. That was a real concern. So now I've managed to reduce the passes down to three-pass system for feed crops just by upgrading the technology and the sort of kit that we've got yeah that's where i'm at preserving carbon and increasing yields
0: yeah i think that carbon things that it's the crux of it really isn't it the um you know at the end of the day that's your water holding capacity that's your nutrients and and that's that's your effect on the on the grand scheme of things really isn't
2: it absolutely yeah, yeah. there's some farms yeah. in the
0: state
3: people are being paid to you know sequester carbon into their soils
2: it kind of has a direct impact on on your yield as well I believe because when you're a low input system uh, we find that where our organic metal levels are higher there's generally always a yield difference there's a positive yield difference in that in that zone um, so so carbon I agree with that
0: is, uh, yep. is highly important mm. yeah definitely like for me um, Soil health is, soil health is where it starts. You know, it's, um, if you can get, if you can get the soil healthy, that's, there's your plant health and there's your disease resistance. Um, I Yeah, I'm finding, you know, and once I get my system up and running, it's, um, yeah, you can, you can drop a lot of your fungicides out because your, your plants aren't actually needing, needing the, well, needing the medical system, I suppose you'd call it. They don't need life support. Um Insecticides are a big one that we can drop. I can drop insecticides. Well, I've dropped insecticides. They're they're almost a no-go for me now. But um, yeah, just just that needs disappeared because of the health. Yeah, healthy soil, healthy plant, healthy animal. Healthy human.
3: That's right. All the way up. Yep.
1: So arable, guys, it's been sort of one that a lot of people say, oh, it's is challenging, you know, like and and from what we're hearing so far, clearly it is. Um you know seed production uh, traditionally you know monocultures a lot of calendar based chem and Fert programs what's it like stepping out of that because I know like Nigel you shared a really great um, point just now it's like all of a sudden you're not needing to use insecticide to keep your crop free of insect pressure or or, you know and, and sometimes disease pressure because you're Plants are resilient, like that there. In traditional arable farming systems, is not a word we use a lot of. Now it's all about protection, isn't it?
0: Yes, uh, I think a lot of the conventional system. Well, conventional—it's probably the wrong word to use too. It's the ma- the mainstream system is—it's very out of the bag, and a lot of it is actually fear. You know, don't you know, put this on, or don't put this on, and you'll have a problem. And I think. Um, you know, the, the four fungicide program on wheat is sold exactly like that, um, I think. But in that instance, you've actually got to be very present. You've got to be in your crop. You've actually got to be, you can't just shut the gate and walk away and come back with the combine. You've got to be monitoring. And for me, it's um, nutrition is, yeah, any any blips in the nutrition I'll, I'll try and fix with foliar brews or, yeah, just... And well, as you, and as you get learning too, you can companion plant. Um, that's things I'm playing with at the moment, and things you can do with cover crops outside of your cropping rotation, and that and that break time is to try and you know you can. But the challenge with that is your um, you know your, your seed purity, because at the end of the day, if you're selling a high-value seed crop, it does have to be you know it has to be dressable to a pure standard. So it's it's all these little challenges. I think we can, do, we can do a lot in that gap period between well, cash crops. I'm not sure where a cash crop actually is, but that's the, the, main, the main crop for that paddock.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that too, Nigel. And, and one other key thing that I've learned, especially around plant nutrition, is uh, you've got to start from, from the start. So when the seed goes in the ground, you've got to start there.
1: Definitely.
2: You can't plant and then, then tra- chase it up after germination. Need that you need that hybrid vigour right from the go. So ninety nine percent of our cereals now are all bare seed, um, and we're just doing powder uh, mixing seed treatments. But um, you know, little research over the last twelve months, the liquid injection system seems to be the way forward, and, and it's given it'll, it'll give us the ability not just to use one or two products, but you know, we can sit five products down there.
0: Totally agree with that.
2: You're here from, you're here from I've the just
0: bath. I've just put liquid injection on my drill this season, and it's you can just tailor bruise to, to specific, you know specifically tailor bruise to that paddock easy, yeah. and I'm using trichoderma and a few other biologicals, and just trying with some things at the moment, but yeah you're right that if you can get that plant off to a huge you know off to that sprinting start, you know the work the work's all the hard work's almost done. Yeah
2: yeah. And You'd Dave, find that
0: too up there, would you, Dave? It's you know you've just got to get that plant up and going fast to try and a to probably beat the weeds, but b just to keep that vigor. Yeah, definitely to beat
3: the weeds. Like we try, I try to go early as possible to outcompete the fat hen. And it's that thing if you start the plant off right, I reckon that's fifty percent done. You know, and I'm the same. I always put uh, the good stuff down with seed like trichoderma, and big fan of uh, EM. One of the – I like it. I think it works. All the research says it works. But there's a local contractor up here who, um, he's the most conventional guy I've met. He's awesome. You know, he's, like, got the shortest stubbies on, half his shirt's unbuttoned. He's got a fag hanging out of his mouth. And I asked him, I said, oh, what do you reckon of this EM? And he's like, oh, there's plenty of milkshakes out there, mate, but he said, that EM is fucking good. <laughs> Are you serious? You're not just joking with me. You're not taking the piss out of a hippie. He's like, nah, mate, nah. He said, all the, all the fodder beats. Uh, cockies use it to prevent their their leaf spot. And if someone like that from that, you know, with his background, uh, is using EM, that's, that's a big, you know, that's a big tick for me. In terms of pest, I've it's been so cool on this farm, I guess, to be able to, you know, it's got a lot of scope and to try things that you've always thought worked and heard it worked but never seen it yourself. So we used to have a massive problem with aphids. I actually got used to annoy Steve Ratton on the phone actually Managed to get him up here to have a look at it because, you know, I was at about 200 per umble sort of thing. And actually did a research uh, paper with Steve on uh, aphids in, uh, yeah, the willow tree aphid. And I just planted his brew, you know, the classic buckwheat facilia around. Also, you know, the symbiosis brew. And, you know, like the, the aphids have vanished. You know, they're gone. Yeah. So, so you so, brought the
0: beneficials in?
3: Yeah, just bring them in, you know, plant the buckwheat Cillia as soon as, um, you know, the, the fennel is an umble itself. So, we're, you know, it, it, it itself is a natural sort of predators like that flower anyway, but possibly bringing them in earlier is having an effect. And it's gone to the point where we've been spraying, um, you know, B-sub and other things, diatomaceous earth out of a chopper, trying to push back uh, the horde of aphids uh, to not even worrying about it or even seeing many at all which is really cool.
0: Nice. So you're companion planting or are you just doing like the waste well, waste areas, the, the, the margins?
3: Anywhere, anywhere, yeah. Tracks, if we've had to stuff up with a drill, just go fill it in with flowers, pivot hubs, uh, roadside. Just that, That's also to make people smile. I think it's good for the vibe. <laughs>
0: yep. It's it people talking anyway. Yeah,
3: look
2: at those guys over there.
0: Do you do any companion planting up there Simon?
2: I have have done in the past we've done clover and psyllia and barley crop uh, which it was very successful Uh, I I didn't have any utilisation of any uh, dressing equipment so I've sort of had to step away a little bit just for that contamination type issue Um, I didn't really, it was only feed barley, I didn't get pulled up at all by the customer, I just wanted to have a go, see what it was about. So that, yep. that was it. That was kind of the bigger extent. But in terms of sweet corn uh, and row crops like maize, yeah, we've planted uh, clover down the rows successfully. Tried a bit of sub clover and squash, but uh, unsuccessful germination.
0: Do you harvest clover for seed, or is that just a companion?
2: No, just a companion. No, we don't have for seed. So
0: that just gives you a, a yeah stock grazing straight after harvest.
2: Yeah, it gives us that um, that ground cover at harvest. So potentially in Hawkes Bay, we can get early autumn rains too. So when they come and harvest sweet corn, for example, when it's stripped tilled, you know the machines don't sink in at all. And when you've got that sort of layer of protection as well, that second layer, you've just got that that capacity just to protect that soil even more. So not really focused on that early grazing because we'll go stitch in grass straight away. But it's mm-hmm. that sort of it's that protection,
3: really. It's cheap, too. Yeah. Five times cheaper to under-sow a crop and then try to get established in the autumn. Tim Chamberlain, who was a shareholder up here, he's really into that. He's a real sow. I could sort of maybe consider him a pioneer of the under-sows. And it's amazing what you can, can achieve with a very, very small amount of seed, like five bags of rice per hectare. And by the time you take the crop off, you've got this beautiful, lush, clean, cheap sward already there for you. Mm. And... I was talking to Murph the other day, Charles Murfield, who I think we all know, well, and he told me that they did there was an experiment in a chamber, and they put in some isotope of nitrogen gas in there with a maize plant and some clovers. And within twenty minutes of those clovers, the bacteria and the roots fixing the nitrogen from the atmosphere, that nitrogen had gone through the system and had actually, ended up in the maize plant they're actively sharing between themselves and i think that's so cool because i always thought and what i think i was taught even was you don't get the benefit until you cultivate and terminate your clovers to get the release of nitrogen but it seems like these guys are really you know they are connected and they're sharing
2: you know in real time yeah i always thought a clover was pretty selfish too and, and wouldn't release any into it someone pulled it over
0: mm. I've heard the same thing too I was just when you were saying that Dave I wonder if that's the the fungal network actually taking over and actually it's that that relationship that you probably don't get in in some other other cropping situations I saw.
1: you can see how it works hey guys like um all these things you're discovering and in, in a like what Nigel said a, you know four fungicide week program you just don't get that and so it's true in that environment that clover's a Selfish because the, mm. the, the fungal networks just aren't there. Yeah. I've heard, guys, a lot, each of you talk about equipment. What, what are some of the key implements that you guys have on your operations that might not be commonplace in others? Um, I don't know if we'd have any uh, pieces of
2: equipment that others wouldn't, but the key, really the main focus for us is, is around the no-till drill. Um, so everything sort of revol- revolves around that. Um, like spacings, tractor spacings, trap control lines, all that. Like I said before, the new, the new addition coming this season, we're we just um, engineering our own uh, liquid injection system on in the tractor. And um, so that'll that'll go down the back of the drill and hoping to be able to take it off the drill or take one pump off the drill and adapt it onto the strip tool machine so then we can do be, straight behind the strips as well, pre pre planting.
0: So you've got your own strip-till machine, or are you in cahoots with a group of people, or?
2: In cahoots with a neighbour. So. Yep. And, and, and
0: you're, you're spraying out those strips pre-strip-tilling?
2: Yeah, so strip-tilling's a little different to no-till now. You need you need to be able to spray out six to 10 weeks, really, to let that root break down. Uh, we're doing strip-spraying, so we can come in, getting you know, when the crop's planted, you know, early August for some of the early crops spray those strips out, and if we have to, we'll carry on grazing the block, and I've sprayed, Some of our squash will spray out for even 15 weeks, so we have this nice little uh, mm-hmm. zone sprayed out, but then we have grass up around our waist on the day of planting that I'll melt down, yeah. which provides a layer of protection, stops weeds coming up and, and holds that moisture in there too.
1: You don't get a, uh, any allopathic effects, Simon?
2: Visually,
0: no. I don't. I don't know if there would be for squash. Yeah, for me, my my key piece of equipment is my no-till drill. Um, I'm I've got a time drill. Um, I've got engineering background. I'm a fitter and turner, uh, machinist, toolmaker by trade. So I hate moving parts. So I, yeah, I was building up towards no-till for a long time until I could find the right drill, and I ended up buying one of Simon Osborne's early drills, and dragged it kicking, screaming out of Coorara, and um it back up here and it's got new yeah new ground engaging gear and it's now yeah this season got the liquid injection system on it so that's that's the key part of my my spray is actually probably pretty close second with uh, doctoring foliar brews and things like that so half the time my sprayer's in the paddock it hasn't got a chemical in it yeah I think and that's just yeah plant health and that's just that second part of the equation and
1: allows you to you know you're a family man Nigel through and through it allows you to you know, have the, the kids out there and you don't have to worry about what they're doing and
0: yep. Yeah, they might uh, smell like fish when they get back inside, but that's not such a bad thing.
1: And the um hmm. the bio tool, for those that that aren't familiar with that machine, um, tell us a bit about you know how it stands out from from other drills. Like it's a seriously
0: it's definitely been well engineered. Um, it would have to be where it's come from. Uh, there was some big boulders, big boulders and some big bends in it and some ground-engaging gear when I got it, but it's um, reasonably straight again now. But, um, yeah, so it's, I call it my poor man's cross slot. I can pull, it's 3.4 uh, metres wide, 21 points, uh, ground-engaging points, at 165 spacings. Residue management, it's a huge stagger, four rows of times, four deep. It's actually quite amazing what you can actually get through it, and it's straight after harvest. I can chop the wheat, wheat straw, barley straw behind the combine and go. And most most of the time, I can get through it with the drill. There's the odd occasion, you know, if you get a bit of in work, irrigation wheel marks and things like that, you get a bit of bit of trouble. But no, it's quite an impressive piece of machinery, well, well thought out. So I spend a lot of time looking out the back window designing that. Just just
2: on your liquid system, Nigel, are you um, just running like a six mil I, just to the back of each layer, yeah?
0: Uh, so I've got a, I run, I've got two manifolds, a uh, manifold at the front and back that do the two, two rows. And then out of the manifolds, I've got a six mil pipe. And then I go to a pneumatic check valve. And then I drop down to a four mil outside, two mil in, inside pipe. And I've actually just drilled a hole in the seed tube and just run it down inside the seed tube and hangs out the bottom 20 mil, 25 mil. So it almost drags in the seed furrow. I hoped I wasn't going to get any blockages, and I've done. I've planted barley and peas with the liquid, and I've had no blockages so so far. So good. Um, I was going to use Bundy tube and run the liquid tube down inside the Bundy tube to protect it into the seed furrow, but yeah, cheated in at work. and it worked. And I tow a rubber-tied roller behind the drill with the the liquid tank on it. Um, very simple. Cost me less than twelve hundred dollars to set up for my machine. So.
1: It's really taking advantage of opportunities, and it's One thing is, kiwi farmers are really good at taking advantage of opportunities, and what a great way to, with one pass, get biological stimulants, trace elements, etc., into the soil where it can be used.
0: Yep, no, exactly. And I think, yeah, like, as we said earlier, that getting that seed off to that good start is the is the key to the right through to you know that gives you your success. You make or breaks your right through to harvest. So.
1: Key machinery up at your place, Dave. You guys have lots of toys.
0: Trying to reduce the toys, probably,
3: really. The plough, permanent fixture, so we can probably electric electro-terminate crops. Yeah, look, the stony country really hates tines, so we use um, discs. Yeah, have got rid of the power harrow Really, it's not a long-term uh, thing to have on on this land anyway. Yeah, you know, we've got precision seeders. The muck spreader is also a very important tool for other fertility at the moment. Look, it's good gear. Good gear doesn't... Break down as much, and you can get more done. Uh, but, and what else? What I've realized, though, probably in the last two years, is probably your best tool, the most important tool, is probably your rotation, making sure everything fits and complements everything else, and also the stock in a mix system, especially in the organics to control the weeds. And I feel like, because I used to do a lot of time weeding, and I worked out, I did a few trials that every time you time weeded, you would clean it up. You'd also set back the crop, maybe two weeks, because it was sulking. And you do that a couple of times and i noticed that the, the linseed we're growing was like two inches shorter where i time weeded versus where i'd let the weeds grow and the yield maps on the header showed that the yield was better where you didn't weed i feel like if you're trying to cultivate out weeds like that it's you've got a fundamental problem and really you should really try to address that you know with, with your rotation and with your use of the, the stock
0: you yeah, know the livestock are definitely a big part. Uh, for me as well, it's, I can drill, I can drill through a standing cover crop, but getting getting half, you know, giving a good graze off it too. It's probably adding EM that comes out the back of an animal to the to the system too. It's putting, you know, active microbes straight back into the system.
2: Dave, are you adding compost or any type of compost to your system?
0: We used to. We used to
3: use um, 20 tonnes of living earth or the equivalent sort of compost as sort of Pushing up the K on the soil. And it's got a very sort of, you know, it's got a low nitrogen. So we've since traded in the soluble for and the compost for chook manure and also um, cattle, you know, feedlot manure actually from Makaya. Mm-hmm. So if you do the analysis on that, it's actually, you know, it's quite the value. Yeah, I was going to
0: ask you where you're getting your manure for your max breeder from. And so it's,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially at the, at the moment, the price of fertilizer—it's,
0: you know—it's almost as good as
3: Bitcoin has oh, gone water. up, and um, fortunately, the price of the manure has stayed relatively consistent. It's just a pain to spread, and your neighbours hate you.
2: Is that um, chook manure is a pure nitrogen, or is it is it a range of uh, nutrients?
3: Yeah, it's got uh, N, good amount of N. I mean, with BioGrow, we're limited to 170 uh, kilos of N per hectare. And I, you know, I can achieve that with the manures and yeah, it's got potassium, calcium, magnesium, um, some traces in there. Yeah. It's quite a complete, you know, it's gone through an animal and fortunately chickens and cows are um, not very efficient eaters, which is why you get a lot out on the other end pigs. There's Patoa pig farm down the road. And I've been there sampled the, the their manure out of the piles and, Pigs are just too good. You know, they take as much as they can get. And there's a hell of a lot of um, straw, you know, when they clean up the shed. So, yeah, the chook manure is a rocket fuel. And then, you know, the cattle manure is actually not too bad itself. Probably the chook manure is good because it's quite fine. So you get the coverage and you probably use more of it uh, quickly. Whereas the, the, you know, the f- cattle manure is um, chunkier, and probably hang
0: around for a little bit longer. I reckon about three years it can sort of hang around in the soil for. One thing I've noticed uh, with doing a bit of research over the years is, and um, looking at soil tests and weed burdens, is high potassium is actually a um, probably an Achilles' heel for weeds. If you look at the, I've got a weed book, and um, but it's yeah, most most weeds enjoy low available calcium and high potassium, and it's you can almost yeah, just if you can change that, if you can change that balance in the soil, I think you can um, you can manipulate what weeds will grow and what weeds will prosper. And another thing is the fungi to bacterial ratio. If you can get your soil slightly in the in the favour of the fungi, a lot of those likes of fat hen absolutely hates fungal bat- um fungal dominant soils. And I had a paddock of spray free wheat a couple of years ago, and there was a huge mat of fat hen come up, um, even though it was no till. But it sat there in the bottom of the crop, and just it didn't even have seeds on it. it stayed four or five inches high the whole right through until I gave it a bit of sunlight after I'd harvested, but then the stock ate it. So it's just, there's little things you pick up on over the time, but yeah, potassium can be your Achilles heel with weeds.
1: And this is all stuff, for the most part, people, you know, aren't talking about. So bacteria to fungal ratios is, um, you know, what's it been like for you guys discovering this? Yeah, because it's a bit more complex than the traditional NPK mentality, which... You know sure nutrient provision is a big part of what we do, but you add in their biology, it changes the game. What's it like for you guys not having the information, having to look for it for yourself, share it or you know, obtain it from others? How's that sort of social element, guys? When most people in the arable space are used to like just that MPK discussion, how was it you in must, those discussions? You, you must be in the wrong circles, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> just, just for the most part, you know, arable farming is very based in more you know the basic big four fertility you guys are clearly out thinking beyond that what's it like socially talking about a a different way of growing seed and vegetables and animals
0: you can tell in the first couple of minutes of saying little things like that to whether that conversation's taken or not to whether you carry it on so you you sort of get to a point where you've battered person, you, you work out, you pick your battles. <laughs> there's a lot more people thinking about it. We ran a, a quorum sensor ran a day at, about biological inputs and it was actually amazing the diversity of people that were in that room there listening. So I think that the conversation is actually not quite on deaf ears as it was probably five, 10 years ago. I think there's a lot of people asking questions and, and trying things. So people like us that you know are doing things over the fence that are a bit different, you've got to be open to that conversation just drop the seed in some people's minds sometimes, but be there to support them if they do I, ask the questions. I was going to say, I just remember,
3: you know, Peter Barrett was on Country Calendar at Linvern, like the next week after that. Everyone was talking about it. Yeah, like on the farm, like in town, contractors. You know, it's a real talking point. I think, I'm think i the same. I think there's a real interest there. I was just talking with a lady a couple of weeks ago, and she's pretty old school, and conventional, and she was asking me about regenerative agriculture and turning some of her farm into the massive mixed species crops, and she just wanted to know how to do it. I thought that was so cool, especially given her background and how you know it's very traditional farm that she's willing to do that and experiment. That was just so nice to see.
2: Interesting question, John. I had a conversation only last night. With, we had a discussion group day yesterday, and, and on the way home, it was four guys older than me, three guys older than me. And uh, we got talking about sort of the space. I, they started asking questions about what, what we do. And so until you get into it, they don't understand it. And then they kind of perhoot it a little bit, but the more you get in and the more you explain it, the more they actually start to listen. So, you know, by the end of the conversation, body language, you can just tell that they're actually thinking about it, that some of this kind of makes sense.
1: So maybe it's not so, you know, us and them anymore. And maybe there's more curiosity than what there was, like Nigel said, five years ago.
0: I think it's people asking questions and looking for different ways, or just not even looking for different ways, just trying slightly different things to get, to get a different result. Because if you keep doing what you, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And I think the big resistance to that is probably a few mouthpieces. There's some big corporations scared because there is actually and I've, like I've, I know on my farm I've got nearly two tons of potentially available phosphorus in my soils. If I can if I can use the right plant or the right root or the right microbe, I can harvest that and that's that's free for me to use. And it's you know two ton of, of phosphate. My kids will still be still be mining that without running out. So
1: there's
0: mm-hmm. a you know and there's a natural system there. So there's a lot of, yeah, I don't know, there's a lot of negative towards thinking the way we're thinking, I suppose, but it's, those mouthpieces are probably almost falling on deaf ears now a wee bit. People are starting to see through it. No one's going to jump in as bowlers, and just convert their whole farm, but it, you know, you really encourage someone, just have a go, just pick a, pick a paddock, not necessarily the main road paddock beside the farm driveway, but <laughs> have a have a go, just... And give it three to five years because it's not going to happen. You know, it might've taken 20 years to get the soil to where it degraded to, you know, well, degraded is probably the wrong word, but the soil's got used to the inputs. Just give it five years to actually come right and you'll be surprised. No, I did that
2: this year, Nigel. It was right beside the road, food grazing. Look terrible. June, July, ran some cattle and then we break every, did uh, daily shifts for 60 days and, uh, Come um, early spring, that paddock was the best-looking paddock on the road, and everyone's like, crikey, how much nitrogen you chucked at that? I said, zero. I think
3: they had four, four feet, each of them. Any system change in farming is daunting, so you can understand that apprehension. But So here we're, I'm growing a couple of uh, green, feed, green chop crops, three of them, and one of them is with you know, the symbiosis mix. I know it works. I know the Jenner experiment in Germany shows that more species equals more performance. But I really just want to be able to prove that. And when people ask me about it, have the data there. So one of the tools i have got here is a satellite imaging program called Eerie Watch. And from that I can measure dry matter production, nitrogen use efficiency. I'm really wanting to compare all three paddocks just to be able to prove that, you know, what what I'm seeing is actually there in the in the science, but also in the, you know, in the economics
0: of it. So, it's using technology to actually gain an understanding and, to, and to, to be able to speak to it. Yeah, and just to communicate with that. Or who maybe are a
3: little bit, you know, like, oh, it sounds good, but does it pay? What do the books say? Well, you know, mm. it'd be nice to say,
0: no, oh, look, it does pay. Yeah. So, what have you, Simon, what have you got in that paddock now? Have you, is it still performing well?
2: Yeah, extremely well. So, we pulled, pulled the cattle out of there. It was grazed pretty low. Uh, we did back fence it. So, obviously, those first sales started to grow. And then uh, we put their bulls back into their other rotation and put uh, some younger cattle in there and just stopped at about four and a half to the hectare there in a, in a, about a 24 day rotation now. And, and it's, yeah, it's incredible.
1: One thing I'm taking away from here guys is um, there are so many ways to go about things. There's no one way. There's no getting there. You guys are always developing and learning. It's really inspiring and I'm sure for the listeners they've, taken a lot from today and probably have more questions and they've found answers, which is great. For those guys that are just starting, guys, they're just starting their journey. This may be the first, you know, podcast they've heard about soil health and and in regards to arable. What would you have to say to those guys that are just pricking their ears up?
0: I think from an arable point of view, the easiest, e- easiest place to start, make sure you don't have any bare ground. Keep a plant growing. Use that, use that off time to actually put something there that's going to create you benefit. so like some benefits so likes of buckwheat harvesting, solubilizing phosphorus in the soil, little things like that and it's, but that's you know it's it's education to what seeds to plant that's probably an e- easy easy place to start but you've got to you've probably got to know what why you're doing it first.
1: Just on that one, you hear a lot of people say and a lot of people practice fallow to you know, save and conserve moisture and nutrients. And so hearing that for some people might be like they might not understand why. Why would you keep your soil covered and why would you have a plant growing um through the year in the soil? Oh, there's there's a
0: myriad of reasons. One of them, one of them is um every plant's got a solar panel and it's you know it's it's helping to put carbon back into the soil. Uh, another one's erosion, soil temperature, you know, taking the extremes out of it by keeping the soil covered. I've heard someone say treat soil like your genitals. Keep it covered. <laughs> I was sort where Keep you're going to go with that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Keep
0: it covered. Um, and it's it's deserts are actually created by, by bare ground.
2: Yeah, if anyone was looking at, at sort of the no-till system for a start-off, I'd, re- I'd advise them not to poo-hoo it. I'd advise them to get someone who has a no-till drill to do some strips or try some crops on, on their farm and see how they perform. You don't have to go and and buy no tool drill to do it. You can get the contractor out there or a person who's got a strip for a machine. So just come and try some small areas and see how it goes. I know uh, my brother's tried it this year and he's literally trying to buy, it, buy a machine now to do the whole lot. So he had a really good experience with it. And it's taken 10 years to convince him that it's the right way forward. And one season of trialing it, now he's doing the whole lot just to
1: perfect distinction between trying to convince someone and actually demonstrating and leading and and, you know showing by examples that fantastic
3: just do as much research as you can be around good people fundamentally come up with a good plan and work out your rotation from the start rather than trying to react to it uh, later on understand your soil and know how it works and what its limitations are what the land will sort of allow you to grow
0: and um, just keep learning one thing a lot of people probably have never done is dig a hole. Get to know your soil, you know, experience it. I was talking to someone yesterday, you know, you walk across a paddock and you're, you're always looking at what's above the ground. But I don't know, a few, four or five years ago, you just, I remember just, I knelt down in the paddock and I just waited. And within, I don't know, within two or three minutes, the, the soil come alive and you could, you could you ran out of fingers pretty quick counting different things that were crawling around underneath you, technically underneath your, your nose. You get, you know, some days you can sit there and you see, might see you know, 40, 50 different things. And all of those things have got a part to play in the system. So that's, for me, insecticides is probably the first thing to drop. You know, get the life back into your into your farm. There's a very small amount of things that are actually going to cause you problem in, in the insect world. One, one insecticide will take care of, will kill everything. And the first thing to come back is the, the insect problems. You know, the aphids will come back before the predators come back to eat the aphids. So...
1: Awesome, guys. Well, look, I really appreciate you all taking time out of your busy schedules. I know you're all busy and family lives and so inspiring to hear you guys sharing uh, what you are up to. And I look forward to, you know, staying on this journey with you guys. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Johnny.
3: This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information... Opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org or visit the
1: quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.